0: So researchers have spent a lot of time trying to understand the quick changes in crowds. Uh, You know, some people call it group think, other call it collective behavior, but it's clear that a crowd often reacts and acts differently than what we would think of a single person in the same situation or even a small group of people. So today we're going to see how quickly a crowd can change. Uh, We're going to see... uh, how quickly the crowd of Jesus' hometown can change. And this actually, we're going to see this throughout the book of Luke as we study throughout Jesus' ministry. The crowds either came flocking toward Jesus or they came coming to try to destroy him. And many today are no different than those in Christ's time as well. If it's it's cool to follow Jesus, a crowd flocks a lot of times to that, but whenever there is adversity or there is some kind of cost involved, a lot quickly bolt for the exits. As we study this rapid rejection of Christ in his hometown today, I want you to to ask God to help reveal your heart for Christ. You know, are you just a part of the crowd or are you truly a disciple of his? And I, I I want you to ask like the psalmist did for God to search your heart. Look at Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. May you truly understand and believe in the Messiah. Join me as we read our scripture for today. It's Luke four fourteen through 30. Starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went, went out throughout, or through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were, was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have such a wonderful scripture today uh, in some ways and such a terrifying scripture in another. We just see how quickly a crowd can go from marveling to, to literally being uh, homicidal, wanting to kill Jesus. Lord, help us to test our hearts. Help us to learn just how, how we can be swayed by others. We can be swayed by our culture, by the crowd. And may we understand our Messiah, Jesus Christ, on a deeper level as we see how he reacts in this. We see his sovereignty. We see his being fully man and fully God all played out in this scripture. And Lord, um, just, just help us to, to have open hearts and open minds to hear your word. God, I know that a lot of us, including me, have had a rough week this past week. But God, Lord, we want to we be focused on you. We know that you are our rock, that our stability must come from you and, and not our world, not our culture, not even other people. Lord God, we, we know that you are always there, that you are sovereign. And Lord, we trust you. So God, may, may you change us through this message today. And uh, not may it maybe your words and not mine, Amen. So today we're going to see four distinct attributes that Christ came as he, or as he showed as he came to earth. And the first is Jesus the Messiah came to earth with power. He came to earth with power, and I'm going to read verse 14 again. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went throughout the surrounding country. Well, according to most scholars and chron- biblical chronology experts, um, there is a gap between verses. Thirteen and fourteen, and it makes sense because we see uh, in in verse fourteen that, that there was a, uh, a a report that had gone out about him throughout the surrounding country, which means something had to happen for that report to be coming. And if we look, um, I've made a I've made the slide to try to simplify where we're at. You know, so we just got through Jesus's baptism and temptation. We saw that in Luke three in the beginning of four verses one through thirteen. And then we get to Jesus' private ministry, and this is where this gap is. We see it in John 1 through 4, and it's Jesus ministering in Judea, a little bit in Galilee, mostly in Judea. During that uh, time period, we see Jesus ministers alongside John the Baptist. We see him call Peter and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel to be his disciples. Those are both in chapter 1. Chapter 2, we see him turn water into wine. Chapter 3, he teaches and meets with Nicodemus. And then we see him minister to the Samaritan woman, other Samaritans, and chapter four, and so that's considered his private ministry. It's not as public; it's more focused. He's developing his his early disciples, uh, and he's ministering. But when he gets to Galilee, in verse fourteen, this is when he's launching his public ministry. This is whenever he's being more open. We see him going into synagogues even before he gets to Nazareth. He's went in synagogues in that area, uh, and he's he's taught. He's he's done even some miracles, as we see with the water into wine, different things like that. And, and so, so we're seeing him him kind of grow through this. So I hope that this helps uh, kind of see his, his public ministry, obviously, ending with his crucifixion and resurrection in Luke 23 24. So, um, again, as we talked about a few weeks ago, this doesn't make Luke's account less accurate. It's that what he chose to speak on, what, what the Holy Spirit told him to write and wrote through him, we are given Jesus' public ministry here. And Moving on to fifteen, we see it and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. so now we see that he's returned, and he started off as we talked about his public ministry but how did he how did he get into that public ministry? He went to synagogues, and many of us may be like, "Well, scratch your head, do you know what a synagogue really is and 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 th- th- this was a place where uh teachers would come and and read the word and we'll get to that a little bit uh, here in just just a second but um, we we see that he came with power here though, in, in the end verse uh, fourteen again. He, he came with power, and the people of Capernaum recognized this power. Is where he goes after this. We're going to see it next week in Luke four thirty two. He says, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So people noticed as Jesus taught, he wasn't like the other teachers. You know, there there were a lot of religious teachers, a lot of. Pharisees and Sadducees, different scribes, that would come and they would teach. And the people noticed, well, this guy's got something different. He, he wasn't just a good man, a good teacher. This guy came with something different. Uh, that th- that this, we know that this did not come just from a prophet, but from the Messiah. He is fully God and fully man. And I pray that, 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 that as we think about that, that we don't miss the fact that he is fully powerful, that he is fully authoritative. At next, we see in, in 2 here, Jesus the Messiah came to earth with purpose. He came to earth with purpose. And I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 again. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as this was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written we've just been kind of saw that timeline. We saw that Jesus has just started his public ministry. He's, he's taught in some other synagogues. Now he comes to Nazareth. And again, like we talked about just a second ago, a synagogue was a gathering of religious people. So Jews would, would gather together in order to hear a teacher speak. Um, and, and as we can see, he went to different synagogues throughout this. Now he's at Nazareth. He's been a few different places before he got here, if we're looking. He had actually done a lot of ministry in Judea, south even before in his private ministry, if we're looking at the map there. But the, the synagogue didn't have a full-time pastor. It wasn't like a modern church, and it also wasn't the temple. So that there were no sacrifices that occurred in the synagogue. Sacrifices had to be done at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, but what would happen is on the Sabbath days... The, the the Jews would would gather, and someone would come, and there was a synagogue ruler normally that would would determine who got to teach that day, and they would you know, hand them a scroll, and they would they would teach kind of on the spot. There they would read, have some different Bible readings, well, scripture readings of the time. Usually, they would read uh, some of the law. Uh, you'd see see them read even some of the the prophets, maybe even a psalm here and there, and then they would kind of give a message of some sort. They would also recite the Shema uh, in Deuteronomy six. We see there. Um, but so, so Jesus is this outsider who was from there that came, and they say, okay, you know, he can, he can get up and read. And so on this day, it was his, role to, his day to teach. And in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And if anybody knows Isaiah, it's a pretty big book. Could you imagine it on a scroll? I mean, you've got, so we know we have divisions of verses and chapters. So we know it's 66 chapters, which is the same amount of books in the Bible, which is pretty neat uh, when you're kind of looking at that. So could you imagine somebody handing you this scroll that has the Book of Isaiah in it, and you know sometimes they were broken up into different ones. We don't know, but the fact that there's not a ton of scrolls, it may have all been one. But Jesus takes it and knows exactly where he's going to read. And, and he, so, he, so, could you imagine his knowledge of the Scriptures uh, as as he does that? And you're going to see that what he what he chooses to read is Isaiah 61 verses one and two. And some of you may be like, okay, well, he reads a couple of verses. But this isn't just any average scripture, as we've read already, but we'll read again here. There's a purpose in what he reads. It's not just a nice teaching. It's not just something easy. The Jews understood this was messianic. This talked about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. So let me me see what he, let's read what he reads in Luke 4, 18 and 19 again. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So let's address these amazing messianic statements. So many people will try to say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, which, absolutely, he claimed to be God multiple times in Scripture. And anyone who will say, Jesus really didn't claim to be God, hasn't either read their Bible or tries to explain it away with a lot of, frankly, irrational explanations. Because here, the Jews understand that he just said he was the Messiah, and this is going to be part of their reason of rapid rejection of him. Because they're going to say, well, no, I don't think you are. And and that's what we have to realize. Like, you can't just say he's a good man, he's a good prophet. We see some religions that try to do that, Islam, and frankly, even Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, will be like, well, we'll we'll exalt him some, but they'll they'll take away his being fully God, one with the Father. And number one, he says, proclaim good news to the poor. And it's interesting that this Greek word for proclaim, following these two instances that we're going to see later, uh, is a different word than what we see here. We see uh, evang- evangelizo, which is where we get the word evangelize, which means to share the good news of the gospel. So he's to proclaim good news to the poor. He's proclaiming the gospel to the poor. And the poor mentioned here are the marginalized, the outcasts. And it's not necessarily economically driven. It's those who are poor in spirit, those who are lost, those who were like us before we came to know Christ. And if you don't realize that you are poor and you don't know Christ, then there's no way you can know Christ because you don't know that you have that need for a Savior. So it is only those who recognize that they are poor, that they are sick, that they are captives, as we'll see in a little while, that truly can be saved. Number two, he came to proclaim liberty to the captives, and we see he also to set at liberty the oppressed. The word liberty here is the Greek word aphasis, which means to pardon and forgiveness. How beautiful is that word. You know, we think about the word liberty and we kind of use it as as freedom and, and there's truth in that. But but the word the Greek word here for liberty is much better than just being free to do whatever you want to do. You know, we think like in America, we're like, Oh, we have liberty, we can we can do whatever we want to do, we can own our own property, we can have the right to bear arms, we have the right all these like we have these liberties that we have in our nation, but the best liberty is liberty from the chains of sin. There's no better liberty than being free from the oppression of sin. Jesus comes to free sinners from the chains of sin, and we can be liberated, and hopefully we have been liberated by the blood of Christ and what he did on the cross. If we repent of our sins, put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, rose three days later and is now at the right hand of the Father, we can experience tr- true 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 freedom and true liberty a lot better than anything the United States has to offer. Number three, you came to recover the sight to the blind. And my friends, so many are blind, spiritually speaking today. You're like, well, I don't know a whole lot of blind people. Well, we have a ton of blind people. They continue to fall, after, fall into pit after pit. They are blind to reason. You try to reason with them. There's no reason there. Two truths can be both the truth, even if they contradict. There's no reason they're blind to facts. They're blind to anything that makes any sense. They're blind to understanding the bad consequences of their decisions. They miss the fact that lifestyles that are contrary to Scripture end up in bad situation after bad situation. They're blind to the truth. And Jesus did not only give physical sight to blind men and women, as we'll, we'll see throughout the gospel here, but he, he opened, and he continues to open the eyes of the blind in spirit. Christ offers light in the midst of darkness, and the light and truth of his word can open the eyes of the blind, spiritually speaking, and show them the way of salvation. And finally, Jesus came, number four, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is a reference of the coming of the kingdom of God. How beautiful is this scripture. Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God has come here and is else and and elsewhere in mark 15. Jesus says and saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel note that Jesus doesn't complete isaiah sixty one two though this is really interesting, and unless you really look back at that scripture you'll miss that Jesus stops short of completing this and if we look uh, let's going to go to the next slide there of underlined it here. And what does this say? We'll just read the the underlined part. The day of vengeance of our God. So he said to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stopped. He didn't come to to proclaim the day of vengeance of our God. And why is that? Because we're in a time of hope. We're in a time of the Lord's favor. It may not feel like it. It doesn't look like we're in the time of the Lord's favor, because there's a lot of horrible things that are happening But you know what? Anyone at any moment can have their eternity changed forever. They can go from death to life just like that, because we are in the time of the Lord's favor. He is saving souls. Souls are going from hell to heaven as far as where their eternal destinations are. We're able to share the gospel. So we are in a time of the Lord's favor. As we've talked about multiple times, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It is here, but it has not been fully consummated, meaning Christ is not on the throne, literally speaking, on earth like he will be. He is on the throne. He is sovereign. He is in complete control, so don't miss that. But right now, he still allows Satan, the little G-God of this world, to have his way in many situations. But one day, that will be put short. That will be stopped. It will be completely finished and that's called the day of the Lord which we've talked about in Thessalonians and here we call it that we see it called the the day of vengeance of our God and Jesus on his first coming didn't come to bring the vengeance of the Lord he came to proclaim the favor of the Lord that the Gentiles like us could be saved that Israel could repent of their sins and be saved. The Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah, as we've been reading in Isaiah, which was written some 700 and some years, or 700-plus years before Christ comes, that Jesus has just read this, this promise that dates back even to Genesis 3.15, as we talked about with the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelium there. They've been waiting for this Messiah ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. We are in a time of the Lord's favor. Now, praise God! We're not quite to the day of vengeance of our God, because then those who are not saved would have their eternity set in stone. There is no second chance, despite what some people teach. That is not the truth of Scripture. So let let us make sure that we have tested our hearts, that we are truly in Christ, and let us share that truth with others during the time of the Lord's favor. Moving on to verses twenty and twenty-one, he ro- and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down the eyes of of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today. Today is the day of the Lord. Today, the kingdom of God is here. How amazing is that? I love how he sits down. He takes the role of teacher. Back then, when teachers would start to teach, a lot of times they would sit down. It's a little different than us, where we stand as we teach. And for me, I have to move a lot, so I don't know what I'd do if I was sitting. Um, my family gives me a hard time about my Fitbit and how many steps I put while I'm up here. Um, but uh, you know, it's the way I think. Uh, I'm talking on the phone. I do that. But but so but but in his day, it was it was customary to sit as you taught. And so he rolls the scroll up after reading Isaiah 61, one through two, and, and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And um, if there ever was a mic drop moment, luckily Jesus didn't have a mic at that point, because if he did, it would have dropped. And I'm sure you could have heard a pin drop, and it says that all of the eyes were just gl- glaring at him, looking at him like, what, you know, what is going on? Jesus had clearly articulated there to the people that he was the Messiah. He left no doubt of what he just said. The people understand, wow, this guy just claimed to be the son of God. He just claimed to be the Messiah. And so they had a a choice to make. How will they respond to his amazing and seemingly outlandish statement to them that he is the Messiah? And before getting to our next point, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to Jesus is the Son of God? Do you recognize that he is the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to God? And I pray that you do. Moving forward to point three, Jesus the Messiah came to earth with perception. He came to earth with perception. I'm going to read verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? So the people are amazed at his articulation of the scripture. I'm sure they're amazed, first and foremost, how fast he found Isaiah sixty-one, one and two. They're like, "Man, we couldn't find that. That would have taken a long time. Probably had a magnifying glass to figure out exactly where we are." And he just, just does it. And so they're they're amazed at first. They're marveling at first. So that, that initial crowd reaction is positive. But how quickly we see this rapid rejection start, and they say something that just seems somewhat trivial isn't is that not joseph's son the people are amazed but now that old familiar proverb that uh, familiarity breeds contentment starts to kick in prejudice start to come in like who is this guy they've heard he's done some amazing things the report about him had already spread through the area as he had launched his public ministry as he'd taught in some other synagogues as we saw on that map They'd heard that, but now they see him in action, articulating the word of God with clarity and grace. But Jesus, he has perception. He has discernment. He is fully God and fully man. He knows what is in the heart of man, and he understands their wickedness. He understands that they don't believe that he's the Messiah. He he, he knows that. Luke only gives us that short statement, isn't this Joseph's son? But Mark gives us a little more in Mark 6, 3. They say, "Is this? is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us and they took offense at him. Brothers and sisters, we have two responses to the Messiah and that is that we graciously and humbly accept that he is the son of God, that he is our savior or we take offense at him and that is our world. There is no middle ground. We either are offended by him, we do not believe in him or we accept him as the son of God. And they're in essence saying, who do you think you are? You aren't any better than us. You're from here. You've grown up here. You were one of us. How, do you, how dare you come and tell us that you're the Messiah? We saw you grow up. And listen to his response in Luke four twenty-three and 24. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you, done at, heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And Anyone who sees Jesus as this gentle and passive man and all hugs and no no direct statements, uh, they don't read their Bible because Jesus is a man of truth as well, and he does shoot straight with this. And here's where this interchange goes from positive, from the crowd marveling to deadly very quickly. So Jesus sees that they are questioning who he is because they're familiar with him. Um, they, they're already doubting who he is, even though they've seen these things, they've heard these things. They refuse to look at the hard facts in front of them. Here, this guy has done miracles that he's opening up the scriptures well. He's speaking with grace and clarity. And, you know, they're just, I mean, obviously we know he never sinned. So they, they, they're missing the fact that he never got in trouble as he grew up. He was always kind. He did what he was supposed to do. He followed the, he followed the, he honored his father and mother. He followed his obviously heavenly father. So they're missing all of these facts because of their prejudice. And my friends, we can miss things too because of our prejudice. Maybe we grew up in a church that taught a certain thing and we completely miss what the Bible actually says because we have this preconceived idea that this is really what it means. And we're not teachable by that because of a religiosity or our experience. Or maybe, you know, pastors I've met, man, they're just, they're in it for the money. They just want the fame. They just want people to respect them. And that kind of, and so I don't trust pastors because we, we can't, we can't fall into that. Or, you know what, I, I don't, I don't trust so-and-so. I don't go to that church. I don't go to churches with that kind of a name because it has this type of thing. You know, we can, we can be so quick to be prejudiced that we can miss the hard facts in front of us. And we can even be prejudiced against Jesus like they were. We can be like, well, you know, Jesus, I, I know I've seen these bad things done in Jesus' name. And so, you know, what about the Crusades? Uh, what, what about churches that, that go out and preach hate? They just spew hate everywhere. What about churches that are unloving? What about churches that are liberal and they don't believe what the Bible says anyway? And so, you know, if this is Jesus and, and I don't, they're prejudiced because of what they have in their minds to keep them from accepting the truth. Jesus does not per- per- proceed to give them a sign. They, they are asking for a sign. They want a sign. Jesus sees this. Even though we don't hear them ask, saying, hey, Jesus, give us a sign, he perceives their heart and knows that's what they want, and he refuses to do so. In Mark, we actually see that, that it says that their faith was so bad, that it th- th- that was so horrible that he could not proceed to do a sign. In Luke 4, 25 and 26, Jesus goes further and starts to rub salt in the wound that he's created with that sharp statement already. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Here's where this rebuke becomes very personal. Uh, The Jews were obviously uh, familiar with this account in 1 Kings 17. The prophet Elijah has just went to King Ahab and said, "Hey, there's going to be a there's going to be a famine. There's going to be a drought." And then he obviously had to run at that point because King Ahab and Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah all the time. Pretty much, you read it, the Kings like they're always trying to kill him. Um, and so Elijah flees to the to the brook Kareth, is led by God, and he's actually fed by ravens supernaturally, which is pretty incredible. But eventually, that brook Kareth dries up because of the drought. And so, where does God tell Elijah to go? You know, wouldn't it be with one of the fellow Israelites? Maybe there's a, an, a you know, group of Israelites somewhere on the outskirts where you could hang out with some people of his people, uh, you know, God's chosen people, and, and be taken care of. No, no, he's sent to Sidon. Sidon is a pagan land. Sidon is a land of idolaters. And so Elijah passes right by his own people, by God's direction, and ends up in Zarephath in Sidon and hangs out and lives with a widow there. And this widow is even able to see a miracle, crazy miracle, of her son being raised from the dead. I mean, how amazing is that? And if you look, Jesus has pretty much said, yeah, you know, we, the Gentiles are going to be over top of you. You're, you're not going to accept me, but the, the Gentiles do. And then he, he doesn't stop there. He gets to verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. Elisha followed Elijah. Don't get confused there. I know it can be kind of tough. Um, so we're moving on to 2 Kings 5 here wh- wh- with, with, the st- with the account of Naaman. It says, And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. So there are many lepers in Israel, God's chosen people. And do they get cured by Elisha the prophet? No. It is actually Naaman the, the Assyrian. If, if you're looking, the Assyrian, he's one of the military leaders of Israel's, one of their worst, uh, worst enemies. And he is healed by God. So Jesus just mentioned two pagans that were able to see God's God work miraculously, and yet they're not going to get to see it. And why? Because they have no faith. Jesus perceives their lack of faith, and he compares them to these pagan Gentiles and says, they had more faith than you. And how amazing is that? Because Naaman, <laughs> Naaman wasn't going to go wash in the Jordan, and he has more faith than them, and he was like, nah, it? that's a dirty river. We have better rivers where I'm from, uh, that's, that's the canal River, you know. You know, nobody wants to go and bathe in the canal River. Like, that's how he looked at the Jordan. That's a muddy mess. I'm not going there. I'll go back to Sidon, some of our pretty pristine rivers. We take care of our place better. You know, and plus, you know, this is, a, you know, an unclean place. It's, there's, there's Jews here. You know, I don't do that. Like, I don't hang out with y'all. And so his people talk him into saying, hey, you come all this way, just go do it. And finally he does it. And so Jesus says, that guy has more faith in you. That guy has more faith in you. I mean, how, what kind of a hit is that, right there? And so Jesus has perceived their lack of faith and their condemnation of him. He came with amazing discernment, and he saw what was in the heart of man. And lastly, here we see point four: Jesus the Messiah came to earth with perseverance. Three twenty-eight, and twenty-nine. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. That's a tough word. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Is that not a rapid rejection? Is that not a quick change in our narrative here? Is that not crowd thinking uh, you know, uh, or, or group think? Crowd behavior, collective behavior? So that the people of Nazareth quickly catch on to what Jesus just said. Jesus just said, you're worse than Gentiles. You all have no faith. You don't believe. And because of that, you're not seeing anything. I'm not doing anything here because you have no faith. You're worse than a pagan widow from Sidon. You're worse than an Assyrian enemy commander. And instead of repenting, which should be, if God tells us that we are worse than a serial killer, that we are worse than these horrible people, Osama bin Laden, we should repent. We shouldn't have wrath. And respond to God like, what are you talking about? I'm worse than so and so. What are you talking about? I'm bad. I'm a good person. I'm better than them. No, God looks at each one of us, and he sees evil if we're not in Christ. He sees us as worse than the worst of sinners who's been saved by grace through faith. As Paul said, of whom I am the foremost of sinners, he saw himself as the worst of sinners that was in need of a savior. We should see ourselves that way as well. And if not, we are filled with wrath instead of repentance. There's two different ways you can go there. I know they both all start with R, but they sound like they do. Um, Wrath versus repentance. But you can't help that Satan and his demons are playing a role in this too. Uh, That There's some spurring because of how quick that this changes. But the heart of man is already bad and doesn't even need that, to be honest. But I'm sure there is some work there as well. And so they go from... A religious ceremony. They go from hearing the word of God read to them through the prophet Isaiah. They go from praying, from other readings, from maybe reciting even the Shema, how we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. How we're to 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 bind them on on us to put them on the doorpost of our home. They've just heard this amazing stuff intellectually, but. You can see their true heart, what comes out after hearing the Word of God taught, after hearing Jesus and and we can assume in here because it says that he spoke other gracious words that he's even given a sermonette or a sermon of some sort and said some amazing things as well, and they go quickly from hearing the Word of God to being ready to kill him and throw him off of a hill. How quickly the crowd can change with his collective behavior, my friends. The broad road that leads to hell is filled with people following the crowd. The broad road that leads to hell is filled with people following the crowd. It's filled with people following the crowd and their hatred of Jesus and his followers and of his word. They call evil good and good evil. The crowd has decided that it's good to kill an innocent man. In fact, they thought it was good to kill the Son of God. We see the same mentality as we come to the crucifixion of Christ. Now we've got a few weeks before we get to 23. We're still in four. We're working our way there. We see this Christ triumphal entry. This is a week before his crucifixion in Matthew 21.9. And the crowds, we have crowds again, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, what? Hosanna. Like that's that's a term of glorification and praise. Hosanna to the Son of David, which is a messianic term. They pretty much said, Hosanna to the Messiah. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, meaning to be glorified. Jesus Christ. Yet a week later, the same crowd that has just had palm branches laying down, that's why we have Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and a week later, Luke twenty-three. 20 through 23. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. The pagan, the pagan governor desires to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, who are they? The Israelites, the same people that just said, Hosanna in the highest. And what are they shouting? Crucify him. They even say it twice, crucify, crucify him. And a third time, so this has happened multiple times, and the people keep shouting, crucify him. And this pagan governor again, Pilate, Pontius Pilate, why? what evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. he's rationally thinking. You got the crowd irrationally thinking, and that is part sin is irrational. Sin, you know evil is irrational. it doesn't think clearly. You look at what people do. Is it rational to leave your family? hanging and just go with somebody else and, and your kid does not have a father or a mother? Is that rational? Do, do, we do is, it, is it rational to to kill someone and take away someone's mother or father or child? Is, is it rational to look at things that ruin your relationships? Is it rational to abuse people? Is, none of this is rational. Sin is not rational. And here this pagan governor has more rationality and more understanding of truth than the Jews at that time. He says, I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. This is where this governor, even though he did see things correctly at first, was weak and did not lead in a good way, and says that their voices prevailed. How quickly the crowd can turn. But in our account today, Jesus' time for death had not come. It was not his time to go. And so we get to verse 30. He still had to complete his path to the cross. And says says, but passing through their midst, he went away. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I, I love it. Because we don't really know how he passed through their midst. I mean, you know, you have some that, that like to deny any supernatural. And they're like, well, the crowd was so focused on each other. They were so angry that he was able to slip through. Uh, I doubt that. The crowd was very hyper-focused on him. Their, all of their eyes were on him. And how did they get him from the synagogue to the edge of the cliff? Because they were pushing him. And now here he is at the edge of a cliff. They're ready to watch him crash on the rocks, and their problem is solved. Their judgment is gone. They don't have to worry. And it says that he passes through their midst. He's fully God and fully man, and we see his fully, full divinity come out right here as he passes supernaturally, in my opinion, uh, through their midst. And this is not the first or last time he's going to escape death. John eight fifty nine and John 10, both speak of Christ escaping those who sought his life. God and his sovereignty had a time where Christ would die, but that was on the cross. And they were not going to be able to jump ahead and go against the will of God. How, how amazing is that to see God's sovereignty? You know, here these people are trying to kill Jesus, and he walks right through the crowd. How crazy is that to think about? And so we can have faith, too, for ourselves. We're not going to go before it's our time. God has appointed a birthday and a death day for us. We can have faith that he will watch over us and protect us. Can we hasten that with bad decisions? Yeah, but he knew they were coming, so it's still in his sovereignty. So we still should take care of ourselves. But but we can have faith and trust that, that he's watching over us, that, that we will not die before our appointed time. How amazing is that? And how amazing was Christ's perseverance could you imagine? Like, this is the, the early part of his public ministry. He's just kind of launched out. He's preached in some synagogues, done some things. And already, he's got two more years of ministry before he's uh, crucified, most likely at this point in his life. And he continues to persevere despite attack on his life after attack on his life, threaten on his life over and over again. He continues his path to the cross. And even then, even all of these threats, he knew where he was going. He continued to walk right toward the cross. He continued to do things that he knew were ticking off the wrong people. He continued to say things like, I am the Son of God. We can certainly learn a lot from the perseverance of our Savior. We are told what is ahead for us as well, maybe not as clearly as him, but Christ lets us know that there will be tribulation, and there will be persecution. There will be difficult times as we follow Christ. And we as believers are not called to run from the fire. But we're called to run through it. And that fire is a fire of testing, of refinement. We've talked about persecution. We're talking about it in 1 Peter right now. My friends, this is a teaching that, that is not taught in the church much. So often we think when life is going well, when we're happy, that that means we're obedient, that we're doing what we need to do, that we're good with God, that things are great. My friends, that is not what the Bible teaches. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego ended up in fire, a fiery furnace, because they were doing what they were supposed to do. Daniel ended up in a a place full of lions when he was doing what he was supposed to do. Jesus Christ ends up on a cross. He never sinned, never did anything wrong. Paul ends up with his head cut off. Our call to walk the Christian life is not based on consequentialism, where we say that if we have good that comes out from it, then we are doing good. If we have bad that comes out from it, then we are doing bad. Had a rough week. I know many of you all know that. But that does not define whether I'm in the will of God or not. Just like if you had a bad week, if you've had horrible things happen in your life, that does not define who you are in Christ. We are called to persevere like our Savior, to continue walking toward Him as He offers us guidance and direction and power through His Holy Spirit. My friends, keep persevering like our wonderful Savior. Don't quit, and fully rely on God to carry you along the way. I'm, I'm reminded a lot of times of of the the poem "Footprints" and if you've heard that poem, a lot of times, like, so, so you see two sets of footprints going for a while, it goes to one, and then there might be two, and, and the guy looks at God, and it's like, well, where were you at when there were only one set of footprints? And God says, I was carrying you at that point. My friends, I, I think theologically, there should always be one set of footprints. There really should never be two sets of footprints, because God should be carrying us the whole time. And that's the only way we can persevere when times are tough, when things don't make sense. When the opposite of what you think should happen happens. When loss happens. May we let him carry us. To summarize, as we come to a close. We've seen that Christ came with power, meaning that he carried the authority and power of God, being both God and man. And number two, he came with purpose, meaning that everything he did was to fulfill his role, as Messiah, Lord and Savior, number three he came with perception meaning he understood what was in the hearts of men and number four he came with perseverance meaning that he never quit, even when he knew it would end up costing his life on the cross. Brothers and sisters, may we glorify the King of Kings and Lord and Lords Lord of Lords, as we reflect on his glorious work as our Messiah and Savior. let us pray, Heavenly Father, may you test our hearts. See if there be any grievous way in us. May we follow hard after you. May we follow through the fire at times. Heavenly Father, if there's anyone here that is struggling, maybe they're struggling with something in their life, maybe they're struggling with whether they're saved or not, I would love to talk to them about persevering in you. God, I thank you for this community of believers and what they mean to me, and the encouragement that I've received from them. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you help us to all persevere. You help us to continue working so hard. I know we talk about Hebrews 10, 25 a lot, that we're not to neglect meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, and we kind of stop there a lot of times. We uh, talk about the fact that we need to be in church, we need to be attending regularly, and that's completely truth. It's very applicable. But at the end of that verse, it says, as the day approaches, and we talked about that today, the day of the Lord, the day of the vengeance of our God, it is coming. May we persevere as we are in the time of the Lord's favor. May we share the gospel with others. May we live the gospel, and may we continue persevering even as we run through the fire. We love you, Lord. May you be praised, and amen. Have a blessed week.